welcome to another episode from our I Decided series. This series is dedicated to some people I know, some friends I cherish, and some clients that I've had the privilege of working with over my coaching life. All these people have one thing in common. They had an I Decided moment. A time in their life where they decided to plan a life they want to live in, or create a business on purpose. Today I have the privilege of sharing a conversation with Dr. Grant Bateman. Grant has both an undergraduate medical degree and a postgraduate doctorate in medicine from Sydney University and is a member of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Radiologists. He is the director of MRI for Hunter New England Health and is positioned at the John Hunter Hospital and a conjoint associate professor at the University of Newcastle. Grant is a consultant neuroradiologist. He specializes in brain and spine MRI. Grant is an active researcher in the areas of CSF pressure and flow disorders, as well as cerebral hydrodynamics. He's published over 75 papers in peer reviewed journals, and he's been a good friend and a person that I've admired in his commitment to work for the sake of others, uh, to do research and understand how improvements can be made in radiology, particularly in reference to how the brain works and how they can use MRI to diagnose the issues that surround cerebral hydrodynamics. Welcome, Grant. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for being available to have a conversation with us today in our I Decided series. It's a real privilege to be able to share with you. It's an honour to have watched your life and and it's shaped over the few years that we've known each other. Mm -hmm. And I've always been impressed by the way you carry yourself in leadership, by the way you you are generous in how you respond and act to people. You're a good encourager. Uh, You like to see people lifted up and... For all those reasons and others, it was what inspired me to ask you to have a conversation with me about about I Decided. Mm-hmm. So today we're just going to start our conversation with a little bit of the, the beginning of, of the Grant Bateman story. Uh, if you'd like to share with me uh, what really, where you came from, what was your early life like? Yeah, I mean, so you can look at someone from the end and say, oh, well, you know, maybe they've always had a lot of privilege or, you know, yeah. they started off life and it was just given to them a silver spoon in their mouth. But really and truly, I mean, I started in southwestern Sydney in a broken home. Uh, we never had really a lot of money because it was my mother and myself and my, my sister living in a house that she was desperately trying to pay off. I was born colorblind and... Uh, Went to school. I was never particularly good to start off with at school. I failed first class, <laughs> which is something that, you know, you sort of wear as a badge of honour. <laughs> um, everyone really sort of said at that stage, you know, the teachers would come to my mother and say, oh, look, you know, he's really a bit dumb. He needs to repeat first class. You know, he hasn't read, he hasn't learned to read anything. Not much is going to come of him. And uh, maybe he'll eventually he'll get a trade or something. And that's basically where I started. And you mentioned to me you had some dyslexia as well. Yeah, so essentially what ended up happening was in first class, by the end of first class, if you wanted to get into second class, you actually had to be able to read something, write let, you know, the letter, list of letters and the numbers, and I couldn't do any of that. And so they came to my mother and said, oh, look, he really needs to repeat because he hasn't learned anything, and, 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 and he's really a bit, bit backward. And, and she said, well, that's not really what I think. And my mother was very feisty, and so she said, well... What we'll do is I really want you to get the, the school counsellor, the, 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 the regional um, psychologist, to come out and have a look at him and see what's going on. And they sort of eventually agreed because my mother is not one to 
you ever say no to. <laughs> and so they eventually agreed. And I, came I, think, out. I think there's a few mothers out there yeah. that have been scary to say no to. And so eventually what happens, he came out and he gave me all this psychological testing for six-year-olds. And he came back and he said, well, actually, he's actually quite intelligent, really. But, he, you know, he's not dumb at all. But he just can't read because he's dyslexic. And the school... Well. Back then, it was like in the late 60s, the school didn't really understand that and it wasn't really something that was well understood and so they were, they were unrepentant really. But at that stage, my parents, what ended up happening was they, uh, their marriage was sort of like irreconcilable and so uh, we eventually had to leave uh, and he stayed in the house and we ended up having to leave and so we ended up mo- moving into my great-grandparents' house and then essentially we moved into my that didn't work out because they couldn't stand having little kids in the house and so then we ended up moving into my grandmother's house and she was an alcoholic and so and it was a two-bedroom house so my mother ended up moving back into her old bedroom with two kids and so she was in her old bed she bought this set of bunks so we were in this house with this alcoholic woman and I was going to this new school and she didn't tell them that I'd failed first class and so she got them into second class and then I just had a whole lot of remedial reading uh, done, you know, and she used to sit there with me and and we'd go through the letters and eventually I sort of learnt, because one of the problems with the wiring in my brain was I couldn't work out which way the letters went. Yes. Uh, They always seemed to turn backwards and whenever I tried to read anything, it was almost, all of a sudden it would look like Chinese, you know. And eventually that sort of all came good and so... That was just the way my life started. There wasn't any, <laughs> it wasn't anything special. Well, yeah, but it's it's never how you start that matters. It's how you finish. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, I mean, the first I decided moment really was after the divorce. She ended up getting the house that uh, he had to move out, and we moved back into her old house. So I ended up going back to the old school uh, in year three. And so it was just a steady progression there. I just decided I wasn't going to be this dumb kid that wasn't going to do very well. Uh, I had a really great teacher in year six. And so I started, like, you know, there were three classes. I started off in the bottom of the second class. By the end of that, I progressed to the stage where I was, like, most improved at the end of the year six. I got this award on the stage and that looked really good. And then I moved into the regional high school and it was huge. Like, there were 350 kids in each form. And so they had 10 classes and they ranked kids like A was A and F was, you know, went all the way down to I or something. And so I ended up, I got into B, which was a big step up, you know. And it really surprised me in a way, but then I sort of thought, I don't think I've done yet. I can just keep going. And so by the end of year 12, I topped the school. Wow, what a transformation. Yeah, I mean, you'd sort of say, well, what was the difference? In fact, there was one kid I remember who I sort of knew pretty well and had been with me the whole way along he said what happened to you you used to be really dumb <laughs> and I said well I don't think I've changed that much but I just mm. I worked hard and I knew what I could do so from topping the school and then beginning to understand more about your skills and your gifts yeah it was time to head off to to uni what what university did you go to and what was the what was the desire to actually choose that university even towards the end, I was improving so fast at school, they didn't even know what mark I would get. So one of the subjects I did was full unit maths, and that was the first year that they'd offered it, the teacher had actually offered it. So, And there were three of us in the class, and she didn't know how we would do. And so they sort of estimated what marks we would get. But by the time I sort of completed and we got our HSC mark back, my HSC mark was probably about 30 or 40 marks higher than they estimated. 
So all of a sudden I had this huge mug, you know, and I sort of said to my mother, well, you know, I can get into anything. And she said, well, why don't you go and do medicine at Sydney Uni because that's the highest, highest mark. And I sort of thought about it for a while. I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll start it. And luckily, this was during the time of Gough Whitlam's free university because otherwise I wouldn't have even gone probably because <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to afford tuition fees or anything. Yeah, Gough, uh, Gough made it very easy. He made it very easy. So I could sort of lob in there. And, and in fact, they, because I was, you know, my mother was, um, was, you know, she wasn't on a big wage. She used to look after, like she used to do typing and, and in small businesses and things. And so I was even getting teased. They were giving me $40 a week, I think it was, a uh, tertiary education assistance scheme, as it was back then, which paid for petrol and a bit of paper. And um, <laughs> so I went, to, went off to uni and I did medicine. And I wasn't outstanding. I mean, I, I was very good at, at a lot of the preclinical stuff and I was reasonably good uh, you know, at some of the clinical stuff towards the end. But at the end of medicine, so medicine is really it's almost like a pre-course it gives you a grounding in, in the whole breadth of the of the subjects but by the, by the end you've really got to then make a decision what you want to do um, because you know it's such a wide open field now, half the people would end up deciding to do, do general practice yes which i didn't really think was for me and the other half would then go off into some sort of subspecialty which for which you needed more training Really, with the way medicine works, it's sort of 50% science and 50% art. So there's all this knowledge that you have to know. But there's also, you, you need to have, you know, empathy and interaction with people and you need to be able to diagnose and you need to be able to discuss and you need to be able to help people. Um, and so it turned out when I sat down and thought, well, what, am, what was I really good at? And I was really good at anatomy and all the science subjects, you know, and physiology, which is like, how does the body actually work? And pathology, which is what is, you know, what disease processes are actually operating. And when I sort of lined it all up, the thing that I was going to probably be best at, I thought, was medical imaging or radiology. Basically, the science of imaging people's bodies, working out where the, where the, where the disease is and sort of planning helping to plan what sort of treatments that would be available for them. And so that's what I ended up, ended up getting into. Tell me about that, that next stage there. Was there someone specific that you spoke to at that point in time where, where you thought, yeah, I, I got all these ideas running around in my head about what could be, but I now have got to actually make a decision about what will be. Was there a particular person you spoke to and did they create some influence in your life as to what you do next moving forward? So... The way radio, the way medicine medicine works is you start off one hundred percent at university, and then by the end you spend most of your time at a hospital, okay. learning the craft, like learning actually. So you're going to see patients and you're taking history and doing all sort of thing. And our our hospital was at Lincoln, which actually no longer exists. They closed it down. And it was a small hospital, and one of the people there was a radiologist who was only coming in a certain number of days a week, and he wanted to take the students and show us what imaging was like and teach us a little about chest x-rays and all sorts of things and so he spent quite a long time mentoring the group and there wasn't really a lot of us there was like 10 or something and I was really impressed with what he did and what he what and I, so I sort of talked about to him about wanting to do this and he was very encouraging and so um, was really out of all the different people all the doctors that I came in contact with and cardiologists and all these people he was the one that really sort of impressed me the most. So I suppose from that point on, it was really then me needing to get into a training position then. 
That was that was the next big step. What opportunities were there for that training position? So back then it was quite quite difficult. So the way that it works, there is a college of radiology, and so you need to essentially fulfil what their training is, which is a five-year course. And so back then there was a primary exam that you needed to sit that proved that you knew enough of the anatomy and enough physics about how x-rays and ultrasound and all different modalities worked. And then after you after you passed that, then you would go off and try and find a position you know, in a training position. And then you would work in a training position for five years and then you would do an end exam to, to prove them that you had learned enough. And so I was working at St. George Hospital. Okay. Um, I was doing mostly accident emergency. I had negotiated to sort of work three days a week in the evenings, like four until midnight. And that left me the, the daytimes uh, to study. And I was also sitting in with the radiology department there and learning as much as I could, just a you know, pro bono. I was just basically turning up and they were happy to have a pair of hands that they could sort of use for free. And I was sort of learning as I went. But at the end of that, I mean, although they had positions there come up, the the director there already had people earmarked for those positions. And so he really didn't like me being around because uh, it would make it difficult for him to put the people who really wanted to be there. So they didn't even offer me an interview. Uh, it was actually quite, quite interesting. But, it, you know, and so what ended up happening was they were building John Hunter Hospital. Okay. And they were moving the hospital from the old Royal Newcastle, yes, which yes. at that stage half of it had fallen down after the earthquake. And so the radiology department was going to be much bigger and they were going to go from three registrars up to six training positions. So they needed three positions filled quite quickly. And they only had enough local candidates for two. And so the director up there was a friend, had a friend in our department, a guy called Phil Travers actually. And he rang him up and said, oh, look, you know, is anyone down there that you would recommend? And, and he was... He quite liked me and he said, oh, look, no, I'd really give this guy a go. You know, our director didn't like him because he had someone else earmarked, but really mm. and truly he should have been put in. So I came up here for an interview and it all went really well and so I moved to Newcastle. So yeah. I sort of started a new job and had a new place to live <laughs> and um, that's, how, that's what happened. So were you married at that stage? No, no, I was, uh, at that stage I was still living with my mother because my sister had moved out uh, and it was only me and my mother in, in this huge house. And so fulfilling the role of father almost, uh, I mean, I, you know, there were, you know, someone had to mow the lawn and someone yes, had to fix yeah. the taps and someone had to change the, the yeah. white robes and so I was doing lots of stuff. So there was nearly no reason to move out. So all of a sudden I found myself in this new, in this new city living in a, in a new sort of rental accommodation. Yeah, I mean, in fact, back then there was this place, which is now the Essington Apartments, mind you, which was okay. the old nursing home, yes, the old yeah. Royal Newcastle Hospital. And so what most people did was you, I think for about $25 or $30 a week, you could rent a room in the old nurse's home. And so that's where I was for most of my training. This girl had come up from Victoria, she was a dietitian, and she was a couple of floors below me living in, under the same sort of conditions. She was in, ended up going to the same church that I was going to and we sort of met and we sort of liked each other and that's where we met my wife. And the rest is history. The rest is history. <laughs> so at the end of my training, I mean, you know, I sort of said to her, well, look, you know, we could go back to Sydney and she said, well, you know, we could go back to Victoria and I didn't really want to go back, didn't want to go to Victoria and she didn't want to go to Sydney and so we just decided to get between us, oh, we'll stay. Yeah. Yeah, you stayed in the best city anyway. <laughs> well, as I said, I mean, I, I didn't really want to go back to Sydney. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, it's the, the, what actually kills you in Sydney is the, the amount of traffic and the, the hubbub and, 
know, yeah, so we, it's just too busy. We left Sydney nearly 40 years ago and, and when we left, someone said to me, Sydney runs on a stopwatch, Newcastle runs on a wristwatch. And I, I kind of felt the pace of the environment here in Newcastle, Lake Macquarie area to be a little bit more acceptable and palatable than, mm. than the pace that was in Sydney. And, mm. and the stress levels there too are much higher than mm. what we have the privilege of living under here now. So mm. that's good. Yeah. So now you finished your training. And you've you've finished that that journey through the whole. I don't know that the journey in medicine ever finishes. It is constant, no, not really. Yeah. So, what was the next stage that you were looking at? Well, so then I had another decision. Really, I mean, would I stay in the hospital system or would I move into private practice? Now, the difference really is that the hospital system is far more interesting because that's where all the really sick people are. Uh, but there's a lot more, there's a lot more, back then anyway, there's a lot more money in the private system. So, I mean, you know, and a lot of people end up just going, well, I'm going private because I want to make a million dollars, you know. But I was really more interested in, in, in interesting, interesting cases and things. So what ended up happening actually was rather strange. So uh, fortuitously, so it always used to be that there was only one MRI for the entire state, magnetic resonance, you know, people yes. would get scanned. There was only one MRI in the entire state, and that was at Royal North Shore Hospital for years and years and years and years. But anyway, it became patently obvious to everybody that this is the imaging modality of the future. You know, it's fantastic for brain and spine, and it's going to be for everything. But they they just didn't have anything. They were, the state government decided they were going to put in another three machines. But, you know, it was pointed out to them, you want to put all three machines in Sydney. There's going to be four in Sydney and that's going to look really bad. So they needed to have someone in a regional, somewhere in a regional hospital. But when they looked around, there was nowhere that they were going to fit. Back then they were like huge, they were 10 tonne machines. They were passively shielded with huge pieces of metal. And so the only hospital that an MRI would actually fit was John Hunter Hospital, which had only just been completed three or four years ago. ago. And so they rang up the director and they said, oh, we want to give you an MRI. And he said, I don't want it. <laughs> because he was afraid of it, because he didn't know anything about the imaging, though it's just completely different to what he was used to. You know, he didn't want to have to learn it. But anyway, they said, well, you're having it whether you like it or not. Because we, <laughs> we don't want to put it in Sydney and you've got a, you've got a room that's big enough. And you know, we can strengthen the floor, we can take the side of the hospital off, we can swing the thing in there and you're going to have it. So anyway, so what ended up happening was, so he came there and there was a guy that they employed from Sydney who came up and, uh, and was running it and was reporting it. And back in those days, the machines were quite slow. You could only really do about 12 or 14 patients a day. And so we, we could only really do brains and spines because obviously that was what was mo- most important. You know, work out what brain tumours and MS and all these different diseases, strokes and things. And so what ended up happening is right about the time when I finished, he suddenly decided he was going back to Sydney and he just up and left. And so they didn't have anyone to run it, essentially. The people, there were other people in the department that could report a few scans, but they didn't have anyone that was interested enough to wanted to run it and actually use it and, mm. and you know, progress the, the technology. And so they came to me and they begged me to stay and run this MRI from him. And I said, oh, look, I need to just finish my basic training. I mean, it's really a job for someone quite senior. And they said, well, we don't think we can attract anyone like that to Newcastle. We really want you to stay and do it. <laughs> and so I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so that was a big decision, actually, because all of a sudden um, you go from just being, you know, a trainee, who no one really takes, you know, much of interest in your opinion. And all of a sudden these neurologists and these neurosurgeons were coming to him and saying, oh, I'm really worried about this case. What do you think is going on? And I'm supposed to be the founder of all knowledge. And, you know, 
So you got, you got spent, to learn quick. So I had to, learn, I, had to, I sort of had to hit the hit the hit the road running. I mean, I just I got all these journals and I started reading them and I went and just branched out and did all this MRI stuff and I started. Once a week, we have a meeting where all the neurologists and all the neurosurgeons turn up and we just discuss cases. You know, we might go through 20 or 30 cases where they put up, I put up the images and they'll say what they think is going on and ask me my opinion and they say, well, we want to do this. Do you think that'll, you know, that's feasible? You know, is that too close to the motor strip or whatever? And so that's how it sort of worked. And so, you know, by the end of a year, it took me a year or two and I sort of started to get to the feeling that maybe I was actually adding something. <laughs> I was actually being useful, you know. Um, but that's really what happened. And so then what happened was, so now I'm in charge of this three or four million dollar unit, you know, and I thought, well, what a lot of times when you, you know, you're in charge of a unit like that, you really should probably be doing a little bit of research. Looked around at all the different diseases of the brain that I could research. And there was this one particular disease that stuck out to me. It was called hydrocephalus, which literally is, you know, hydro means water and, and cephalus means head. So it's water in the head. Uh, so it's too much water accumulating within the brains of certain patients. Um, and no one for like 50 or 60 years have been able to work out how this occurs. And so I decided, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do some work on it. Mm-hmm. And I looked at what had already been done and I just thought, well, you know, I can expand on that a little bit. You know, the MRI is very good at measuring flow of blood and fluids uh, and the way that they interact and the way that there's a lot of pulsation and dampening and, and all sorts of things. And so I started doing that. Very early on, I realized that really what I was doing was applying hydraulic engineering to people's brains to try and work out what was happening. And so, uh, you know, I sort of reached out to a whole lot of engineers to see if they would work with me. All through my life, I've actually had this thing where everyone underestimates what I could do. Okay. So they, they were not interested whatsoever. They said, <laughs> oh, look, you know, we're not interested in talking to a radiologist that doesn't know anything about engineering. So... In order to progress this, I actually had to teach myself hydraulic engineering. <laughs> and so, you know, I sort of did. Okay. <laughs> Along the way, I just read articles and a lot of it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, you know, if, you, if you're trained as a biological, you know, science and all of a sudden it's hard engineering science, it's quite tricky. But eventually I got there. And so um, essentially what I eventually ended up doing was that I... Um, I started working some of this stuff out. And so it turned out that um, the reason why hydrocephalus was so difficult to work out is that really there were a lot of other diseases that were interacting with it. So some of the diseases that people understand, like Alzheimer's disease and dementia and vascular dementia, were all rolled up into this thing. So it sort of sounds a bit weird, but I just decided, oh, well, I can just work those out. I'll start working on those and see how they sort of tease them out so I can work out, because I really wanted to work out hydrocephalus. So I, uh, at that stage, uh, there were a couple of neurologists that I were working with, and I said, well, could you, you know, we'll go to ethics, we'll, we'll get it approved, could you send me some patients and we'll work out what's going on? And I had this one guy, Chris Levi, who's a bit of a believer, and so he said, fine, we'll send you cases. And so after a year or two of that, I sort of worked out that I came up with this sort of idea that it was all, all of this, all of these problems were all interacting. It was the way that pulsations, so pressure waves pass through the brain and how they interact with the brain and how they get dampened and how they, how they don't get dampened. That was what was going on. So I came up with this theory and I managed to get it published and 
everyone thought it was crazy and no one was interested. And now 20 years later, uh, all around the world, there are people that are saying, well, wait a minute, we think that pulsations cause dementia. And isn't that a fantastic idea that we've come up with? And so there's lots of work being done. Um, doesn't always reference my work, but that's life. Well, it, it, there often needs to be somebody who makes a breakthrough. And then it starts to, to create other people to think differently. Mm. Uh, I had the opportunity earlier this year of, of interviewing and having a conversation with uh, Professor Mark Baker. Mm. And he had this similar s situation where the paradigm had to shift. Somebody mm. had to think differently first. And then from that, then things started to move in a whole different direction. It is, it is someone who is bold, someone who's made that I decided I'm going to have a shot at this from a different angle. I'm going to kind of view this from a different tangent, from a, from a new lookout, a new, mm. a new viewpoint, to see a perspective nobody's really looked at before. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that was really stuck out to me is, I mean, see, if you take your finger and you put it on your Adam's apple and then you slide down next to the muscle there, you can feel your carotid pulse. Yep pulsing away and that's just a pressure wave that's rocketing up from your heart towards your brain now the capillaries in your brain where all the metabolism happens they don't want that pulsation at all they just want continuous smooth flow so somewhere between your neck and those capillaries all of those pulsations have to be dampened out and it turns out that the brain has this very very intricate method for doing that but as you get older that fails and so that was really what i was looking at i was looking at how does this dampening method work? And I worked that out fairly early on. And it's got a lot to do with the way that you might have a, a skyscraper in in, uh, in Tokyo and, you know, you get a huge earthquake and they have to have dampening mechanisms. And the brain uses a lot of these sort of counter-pulsation dampening mechanisms, but they all tend to fail as you get older. And so how does that affect the brain? Well, the pulsations end up getting into the capillaries. They end up destroying. It's a bit like taking an apple tree and shaking it and all the apples fall off. That's what happens to the brains of demented people. That's what I think. That's what I came up with as the, as the possibility. And so it turns out that that actually is an underlying theme in a lot of different diseases. So it's not just those diseases I've, I've been looking at. So I was sort of asked to start looking at uh, another disease people would probably have heard of, which is multiple sclerosis, you know, and, and that's the current paradigm is that's 100% autoimmune disease. So it's your immune system attacking the wiring of your brain, essentially, the, the wiring of your brain is insulated with, with fat um, myelin and it gets attacked. And I thought, well, there must be something triggering that. And so I started applying all the techniques that I've been doing to that. And it turns out that, yeah, I mean, there's an underlying pulsation abnormality there. Mm -hmm. And essentially what it's doing is it's destroying the myelin and all of the all of the antigens is coming off into the into the bloodstream, and then that's a secondarily, I think, eliciting a, an immune reaction to that, and then it's being attacked by the immune system. But I mean, you know, that's uh, and that's something that I'm sort of currently working on. But there's not a lot of people that <laughs> that believe that that's got to be right. I mean, you mm. know, it's it's a it, one of the things actually. You might think it, the hardest part is coming up with an idea and proving it. Well, that's not anywhere near the hardest part of medicine. The hardest part is actually getting anybody else to believe it. Okay. That is well and truly. Medicine is ultra-conservative. No one wants to believe anything that comes out that is new. It's often said you don't want to be the first or the last to do anything in medicine. Um, and you might think, well, that means nothing ever, ever changes. And for a lot of times, nothing ever changes. 
because you know there's this whole thing you've got to be able to prove that what you were doing is um, you know acceptable particularly in the litigious society so no one wants to try anything new and no one wants to be doing all the old stuff that has been disproven previously but everyone wants some new things to come along but when they you want, actually they say want a breakthrough here's a breakthrough yeah. and they go oh that's rubbish that's, that, that can't work we don't want to know about that one of the things you've got to do is you've got to able to write your your words your ideas into a paper and send it off to a journal and it has to be published you know there's this thing called peer review which um isn't quite as wonderful as everyone makes out because if you come up with something that's completely novel and they end up sending it to not so much your peers as your rivals, because they're the only people that understand what you're saying. Yes. And what you're saying might be completely the opposite of what they want to believe is happening. Yes. So it's not in their interest for that to get an easy path into print. I guess, too, particularly if they're taking a different tack in researching a similar item, hmm. and they've got a paradigm already running around in their mind about, okay, well, we could this could be a completely different tack, and you're both on different tacks. Yeah. You're both actually trying to get to the same destination. But at that point of time, you're in, the, in a different direction. Well, see, what people don't realise is one of the things about me is in some ways I shouldn't really be able to do any of this work because it's pretty much unfunded. So I don't have any funding. I sort of like managed to get things done, um, but there's not a lot of money there. And a lot of people really don't want to work with me because I'm a bit out there. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of us, I mean, I've, done, I've published something like 70 papers of which I'm thinking I'm the first author and about 50 or 60 of them because, no, you know, because I've just, uh, other people, and now will work with me, but it, it was very difficult in the beginning. And so what you find actually is that um, you really, you really need to work on your own. You really be able, need to be able to back yourself. You really need to be able to push it forward. And as far as getting things in the, into print now, um, you get a lot of knockbacks. You might think, well, you know, someone that comes up with all these ideas that they're going to just sort of sail into the journal. But that's not like that at all. I mean, I've had, I've had things where, in fact, I've only just had a publication on how hydrocephalus in children works, which I think is very, very close to being what the truth is. The first journal I sent it to, and they'd previously published about four or five of my things, well, the, the editor wrote back to me and said, oh, we're not even going to send this out to peer review because it's just rubbish. It's complete garbage. So it's not even worthy of being looked at. So I said, oh, thank you very much. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry that that's your opinion. And, and uh, how do you deal with that on the inside when you've been doing this research? How, how do you deal with those type of knockbacks? Those uh, type well, of you've got to remember, I mean, most of the time, by the time you get to the paper stage, you've probably invested about two, two or three years into it. Yes. Um, you know, you've got to come up with the idea. You've got to go to ethics committee. You know, you've got, you're, you're dealing with people. So, you know, you can't, it has to be all done by a board. And then you've got to actually acquire the data. And then you've got to work on the data. And then you've got to work out what's going on. Then you've got to write your paper. Uh, so, and obviously, no one likes to be told what they've done is, is not any good. Um, but I've got I've developed you know, the skin of an elephant. <laughs> okay. So I just dust myself off and say, well, actually, I think there's something in it. So I'll just send it to another journal, and there's endless numbers of journals out there. Okay. So I sent it to another journal, and uh, and they were really quite impressed. In fact, I probably sent it to the wrong journal. I mean, so 
mostly what I do is, is, is mostly engineering with a little bit of medicine thrown in and I sent it to a medical journal and they just okay. couldn't understand it. So in the end, I sent it to an engineering journal and they got it. They didn't understand the medicine, but they said, oh yeah, well, we understand, you know, pulsation absorbers and yeah, this is obviously failing, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And they didn't actually want me to make any changes at all. In fact, they, they wrote back and said, we want you to change this little bit and that little bit and we want you to expand this bit. So I did that in about three days and sent it back to them and said, fine, we'll publish it. So that was the, you know, so, you know, you go from the, the depths of despair to, no, this is actually really good. <laughs> and that's what, that's what medicine, that's what research in medicine is all about. Well, look, every, everything you're saying has, has a resonation for me. I spent some time with uh, Dr. Chevelle in South Africa mm. and talking with him about these pulsations of, of too much blood flow getting in and around the brain. This was relative to migraine. Mm. Um, as, as you know, my wife uh, suffers severely from migraine. Mm. And what he did, he did a series of operations to actually reduce the blood flow into the brain. And that moved us from a position where my wife, she was in bed 25 days plus a, a month due to migraine and, and it brought us back to a, a more normal life. But it's interesting what you're saying today about the aging process mm. and how further dampening is affected over time. So from your from our conversation now, I'm wondering whether uh, Donna might be due to aging now, seeing some of that uh, effect yeah. of what she previously had that, that uh, Dr. Chevel was able to work with, whether there's more work that still needs to be done. So none of this stuff actually, when you think about it, none of this stuff is hard and a lot of it is quite practical. So if if you stand at the tap in your sink and you turn it on full, and then you turn off really quickly. What happens? Water shut. Water up. hammer. Yeah. You get this bang that goes all through the pipes. Now, if you did that continuously, like 72 times a minute, and you did it for a few years, what happens to your pipes? They blow up. They blow up. They burst. And so that's essentially what your heart is doing. So every time your heart ejects blood into the aorta, the valves open, this jet of blood comes in, and then the valves close. So half the time blood is entering the arterial system and now half the time there's none so at the actual aortic valve the pressure goes from really high to zero really high to zero and then and as i said by the time you get to the capillaries that the capillaries want that pressure difference between systole what they call systole and diastole be nothing continuous stream so you've got this water hammer and so what ends up happening is that the aorta is extraordinarily elastic it's called an elastic artery it expands and contracts and the carotid arteries they're, they're muscular arteries but they also expand and contract and so the whole way along there's this dampening going on so what ends up happening for most people as you get older is your blood pressure goes up uh, and as your blood pressure goes up the it's not that both the highest pressure and the lowest pressure go up together. Usually the highest pressure outstrips the lowest pressure. So the actual pulse pressure, the difference between those increases. You say, well, how can that be? Well, everyone knows as you get older, what happens to your arteries? They get harder. Yes. So they're no longer elastic. They're now full of calcium. And so calcified arteries don't expand and contract. So yep. they don't dampen pressures. And so those unfettered pressures pulse pressures are now getting further and further along the arterial tree and closer and closer and closer to your brain. And so essentially that's what ends up happening. Now there's a, a, another whole mechanism in the brain itself. It sits, sits in a water bath and the arteries around the brain expand and contract in this water bath and the, the water around the brain, which is called CSF, moves backwards and forwards. 
it actually works exactly the same as uh, as a dampening mechanism inside one of those uh, huge towers in Tokyo. I told you, you know, they, they set it up so that as the tower starts swaying in, a, in, a, in an earthquake, they've got this huge mass that's swaying exactly 180 degrees out of phase. And so that dampens the whole thing. And so what ends up happening is that the CSF, the water around the brain, actually pulsates exactly out of phase to the arteries. And that dampens them. But that fails as you get older because the spine gets more, more rigid. There's less like Water is incompressible, so there's less places for it to go. Yes, yes. And so one of the things I've been able to work out, and there's a whole lot of diseases where either the pulsations are too high, so that's the equivalent of driving along a really rough road, or the dampening mechanisms have failed, and that's the equivalent of driving along a road that isn't all that rough, but it, your springs are shot. You, yes, you know? yeah, so you've got and no... So you've got no dampening. No, so yeah, you no feel concept. every single bolt mm. through your spine, you know, and, and, so, and so it turns out that different forms of uh, dementia, some, some of those forms of dementia, the pulsations are too high, and other forms of the actual dampening is not good enough. Uh, and in MS, I was talking about multiple sclerosis, the dampening is completely gone, mm. even in young people. And we're still trying to work out why that would be. But, um, and that basically just shakes the whole system to bits. Could that affect other things like Parkinson's and other... Look, that... I mean, I've, I've not looked at Parkinson's disease, but uh, Parkinson's disease is, is a, a rarer form of dementia. Uh, and it's, it's quite likely that mm. there might be something there. Um, it, really what I've been doing has... It's really a completely new way of looking... When I started, anyway, a completely new way of looking at the way the system operates. There's lots of ways for that to fail. Mm. Um, and because of the way that op, you know, the diseases work, Every different way that you can fail is going to end up with a different disease. And so it's really then just a way of saying, well, okay, well, what about this one? What about that one? What about that one? And, and then you come back to, well, how can we actually fix the dampening? And that's where it becomes really controversial because then it's going to be probably fairly invasive and getting anyone to be the first yeah, it's very well, difficult. <laughs> again, you know, the the uh, treatment that my wife had in South Africa, they would never even consider in Australia. No. That's why we went there. But because it's a teaching, training, research hospital in Johannesburg, they will they will experiment. And for us, the experiments worked. And for many, many Australians head to South Africa for that treatment. So It's checks and balances. I mean, there are lots of different theories about lots of different diseases and the reason why medicine is so conservative is that there have also been lots of things that have been done to people that have been complete and utter disasters. Yes. So the thalidomide thing with, you know, short-limbed babies. I mean, in the beginning, they thalidomide was a drug that was given to women that would actually stop severe nausea in the first part of their pregnancy, which was very, very beneficial. It worked really well. It wasn't until later on that someone put together, well, why are all these babies being born without limbs? And it's got to do with this whole, because we gave them thalidomide in the first trimester. For every new breakthrough, treatment, breakthrough that actually ends up being good, yeah. there's another breakthrough that ends up being bad. And, yeah. and medicine is all about do no harm. Well, predictable repercussions are very difficult without some type of experimentation. Well, I mean, and, you know... One of the things about the human body is that it is such an amazingly intricate machine, mm. essentially, that you can't really tinker with some small part of it without expecting that you're going to make a 
big change somewhere else. And that's very, very difficult to predict. Yes. And because of the way we are and we don't want to harm anybody, uh, so medicine ends up being very conservative because it's sort of like, well, we could do something to fix that, but we just don't know where that's going to lead. You know, and we've had a lot of bad things happen mm. in the past, and mm. we've just gone off on a tangent. So mm. we're not going to go. We're not going to go there. Is the way that it mostly works. So, what's the greatest challenge you face right now? So, I mean, I've come up with a lot. <laughs> it turns out the greatest challenge is actually getting it believed. Okay. Um, so it's often said with medical research, you don't actually convince people of what you're saying. What ends up happening is that all the people that don't believe you die and a new cohort of people come up that for whom your ideas are acceptable. And so I'm sort of, I need to actually outlive, <laughs> outlive all the people that don't like what I'm doing and what I'm saying. Um, but that's actually happening. It is actually happening. Um, you can, you know, you can start from the background. So what you can do is you can write letters to the editor about other people's work and point out the, you know, the, the holes in it and how what you're saying can actually fix that. So that's one way of sort of getting out there and trying to sort of like, but it, it's a bit like, a, you know, it's a bit like the huge coal ships that come into, into Newcastle Harbour. I mean, yeah. you, know, you can put it into reverse, but nothing happens for 10 kilometres. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's a bit like that. It's a bit like that. So you're trying to, you're trying to spin a, um, an ocean liner in a... Oh, well, I'm trying to get, for some diseases, I'm trying to get them to go in a, a completely different direction. And I'm turning that wheel as hard as I can. Yeah. But at the moment, not much is actually happening. Well, you're sowing seeds. Yeah. And there's one thing that we all know, no one rushes growth. Um, so when growth and change is going to happen, you can't, it, it has a time. Seeds reproduce after their own kind, but they also have, every seed has a unique growth cycle. So the seeds that you're planting now have a growth cycle. And as much as you would love it to happen faster than what it happens, it will happen in its time. I think in the end, what you need to do with your life is you need to decide, do I want to make a difference? And if I do want to make a difference, how am I going to do that? And so yeah. you need to, with me, I've found an area that I really like. Yeah. I really enjoy it. I mean, I, I enjoy working out problems. I enjoy the physics of it all, you know, the engineering components of it all. I enjoy all of that. So for me, it's not really work. And I'm happy to, I've got to the stage now where I'm happy to have said, well, look, you know, I've done what I've done and this is my research and I've got it out there. It's in, it's in publication. And look, you know, yeah, it's up to other people what they want to do with it. And mm. I'm not really that fussed. I, mean, I think what I've done is, is probably going to change the course of the way things are treated in, in the future, but so be it. Yeah, it'll take its time. Yeah. It'll run its course, and and what you've contributed will be invaluable. Yeah, well, you like to hope so. <laughs> no one wants to get to the end of their life and say, "Well, I wasted that." <laughs> well, that's true. Well, one of the questions I ask people as we we're kind of moving towards the end of our conversation is: one day, your life's going to be reduced to a sentence or maybe a paragraph, and what would you like that sentence to say? Well, I mean, I think what I'd like people to say is, well, you know, he was ahead of his time. He did a lot of work and he helped a lot of people. Yeah. That's what I'd like. Yeah. Well, that's a brief one. That's a, <laughs> a, a lot of times people have given me ones that are much longer than that. 
Well, I, part of what I do is you take a whole lot of information and you condense it down. So. Yeah, yeah. A term that I use quite often when I'm coaching with clients is amelioration. And amelioration is an agronomy term, which is talking about betterment and improvement. Mm-hmm. You know, and I kind of believe as we've been talking together and sharing together, that you're ameliorating what's happening in your industry, in your discipline, in medicine, and many others are going to follow in footsteps and, and pick up the baton and pace from where you are now to run their course mm. with information. And it might be tweaked or it might take a slightly different tack, but but the journey's begun and the difference will eventually be seen. Well, thank you. Thanks for your time today. And thanks for what you're doing in research. And on behalf of community, thank you for for the difference you're trying to make there as you grow and develop other people as well. Who are you mentoring now that you that you really love investing into? Well, I mean, uh, we're a teaching department. We have a whole lot of registrars coming through. I, I do most of that. So a lot of the stuff that I have actually done now actually has practical applications. Um, you were talking about Donna and, uh, um, and her migraines. There is a disease process called idiopathic intracranial hypertension. And idiopathic is just a word which just means we don't know. <laughs> okay. Right? Uh, and intracranial means in the head, and hypertension means the pressure's high. So it's people with high pressure in the head for which we have no idea. And so uh, one of the, that's one of the diseases that I worked on fairly early on. And so I, I now know how, I, I, mean, I, know, I now know how it works. I mean, I didn't do all the work in that, but I, I probably put a lot of it together. I have a test now. We, the people come in, we, we measure the blood flowing in, we measure the blood flowing out, we look at how it interacts. And so we can actually, even before they stick needles in people, and so uh, I'm trying to get uh, other, other trainees um, interested. Someone needs to be doing this work when I'm no longer around. And at the moment, I'm doing all of it. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, we have a, a number of, uh, we've got um, 12 registrars now. It's gone from six to 12. That's not that much work. So I, I, you know, I'm trying to mentor them to a certain degree. Well, look, thanks for your time today, Grant. And yeah. it's been awesome to catch up. And there's so much more about you that I... I know now, I, I never knew before, and, and that will be the same for our listeners. Thank you for what you're contributing into research. And again, I just applaud you for the way you carry yourself with your generosity and with your your dedication into what it is. And you could have left and, and gone off into that private industry and made have, all those... could have chased the money. <laughs> made all those extra bucks, but you've, you've contributed. Uh, you've contributed into all of our community of health and contributing in, into Australia in so many different ways. So thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your efforts. Yeah, I look forward to having more conversations with you about this. I'm, I'm actually fascinated by what it is that you're doing. So yeah. thanks so much.